Good morning, everyone. Uh, just a quick little reminder of the announcement that I sent out this past week, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, based on uh, Governor Abbott's most recent declaration on June 3rd, we are allowed to kind of increase the capacity of our sanctuary. So we will begin doing that next week, and the way that will look is very similar to what we've been doing. Still two services, still live streaming, uh, all the things that you've been accustomed to recently. But we have tape on these front pews, and we are going to remove that for the front section of pews. They will remain in the back section of the, of the pews. And then we will also have a separate room, kind of what we're calling a, an overflow slash social distancing room. If you feel more comfortable in there, that space will be made available to you as well. But we want to be able to increase the capacity because starting July 5th, so the first Sunday in July, we will start offering childcare. We know there's a number of young families who want to be here, but just don't feel comfortable, and understandably so, sitting in here with their young children. And so in the second service, beginning the first weekend in July, we will offer childcare for nursery through four- and five-year-olds, okay? It's the second service only. And then that will allow us to have a little more space in here. We're going to let people sit in this front section based on your own comfort level and discretion, um, and then uh, we'll carry that through July, and then the good news is on August 2nd, we get back to normal, right? Can we have a round of applause for that? <laughs> so on August 2nd, we will return to normal, at least what we've been accustomed to in recent years here at Melanie Park Church. So we will have our Sunday morning ABFs at 930, and then we will have our 1045 single service um, where we will all come together and worship as a church family uh, beginning at 1045. Child care, same routine. Uh, um, as was in July, um, and so we will continue doing that. Now, I say all this to let you know kind of what our plan is based on current conditions and proven conditions. If things change, we'll change. We'll adapt based on what's safest for our church family and the guidance given to us by our government officials. But just kind of wanted you to know what to expect in the coming weeks, and let's just pray together that that plan is able to unfold as I've just described to you, and we can get back to normal in, in August. So, With that being said, I want us to get back to why we're here in the first place, and that is to continue our series that we started last week looking at the life-changing encounters with Jesus. This week, we're going to look at the life of Matthew. Uh, this is going to be fun. It's a great uh, event in, in, our, in our scripture. How many of y'all, just curious, have watched uh, the TV series The Chosen? Anybody seen that? Okay. So if you haven't, let me encourage you to look into this. It is actually an app that you can get on your phone, the Chosen app, and you can stream it onto your TV. Um, there's a series, the first season, which is the only one done so far, is an eight uh, series or eight episode season. Um, but it looks at the life of Christ and his disciples, and it's fresh, it's unique, but I think very biblical in its presentation, and you will really be blessed by it. The reason I bring that up is because as I was preparing uh, for our study of Matthew, I couldn't help but think about the series and the way they uniquely portrayed him, and if you've seen the series, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But let's begin with Matthew's own account. So if you will, turn to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9. And before we look at that together, let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know that 
your word is filled with life-changing encounters. We see them throughout the Old Testament. We see them throughout the New Testament. And we also believe, Lord, that this room is filled with life-changing encounters. People who have been able to experience the work of your Spirit within their hearts that drew them to you in that loving relationship of grace and forgiveness. And so as we look at the life-changing encounter of Matthew, I pray that it makes us think of our own stories as well, that it will recall within us how you called us like you called Matthew, to leave and to follow. And maybe for some of us this morning, we might make that decision for the first time. Others, we might renew that commitment But I do pray that for each and every one of us that there's something that we can take away from the example of Matthew that impacts how we live our lives when we leave this place. Lord, hear our prayer, have your way, and we ask this in your name, amen. So Matthew chapter 9, before we actually look at our passage, I want to give you a reminder of, of the context of which this story takes place, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all those Gospels describe the calling of Matthew immediately following Jesus' healing of a paralytic man. And this particular healing caused quite a stir, because when they brought this paralyzed man and they placed him at the feet of Jesus, Jesus looked at this man and he said these words. He says, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, wait a second. I mean, healing and miracles is one thing, but to actually tell someone your sins are forgiving, now that's a completely different matter. And as you might expect, it created quite a stir for many people wondering, how does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? That's something only God can do, right? How can he say that? And so they began to question these things. And look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or say, Rise and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, and go home. Jesus' authority over sickness and disease validated his authority to forgive sins. Jesus' authority to perform miraculous signs was not the end in of itself. It was a means to justify, to help them see, to put on display the evidence that he is the promised Messiah, that he is God incarnate, and he has the power to forgive sins. It was this experience of forgiveness that then introduces us into the story of Matthew, and as we will see, it's very fitting. So look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Verse 9 says, and as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. First of all, we need to know that Jesus is in Capernaum. This has kind of become his home base for ministry. Mark tells us in his gospel of this same account that large crowds were following Jesus. Everyone wanted to see what he would say and and do next. 
And when they came through town, as I'm sure they had done many times before, they walked through uh, beside Matthew, as I'm sure they have done many times before. And Jesus saw Matthew. Matthew saw Jesus again, like they have many times before. It says that Matthew's sitting in his tax office, which is important to know. It's a, it's a highly visible, elevated platform in that city. You see, everyone would have seen Matthew, but very few people would have paid attention to him because Matthew's a tax collector. He's a traitor. He's an enemy of the Jews. And let me explain why this is true because it's really important to this story. First, it's important to know that the Roman tax system was ruthless, it was relentless, and it was very corrupt. The way it worked is that a Roman ruler of a province, of a particular area in the Roman Empire, he would actually negotiate with Rome. And he would negotiate for a tax rate to be applied in his province. And then he would go and hire people like Matthew to collect those taxes. Now, there were all kinds of taxes levied, not all that different than what we experienced. We had, they had income tax, they had property tax, they had any number of taxes. But let me give you kind of an oversimplified example of how this works. So this Roman ruler of a local province, in the, case, in the time of Christ, it would have been Herod and Antipas. So Herod would have negotiated with Rome, and let's say they negotiated a rate of $20 a person, a citizen. That was the tax rate. Well, in, for, in order for Herod to make money for the province, he would then turn around and expect the tax collectors to pay him $40 a person. He needed to make a profit. Well, the tax collector would go and do the same thing because he needed money too. So in the end, he would charge the citizen $60 a person. So by the time the tax rate got to the person, it was three times what was originally negotiated. And there were no regulations for these arbitrary increases. And so during this time, collecting taxes was more or less legalized robbery. That's all it was. So, as you might expect, Matthew, as a tax collector, was not a very popular man. In fact, he was despised by his fellow Jews, seen as perpetually corrupt and unclean. As a result, he and any other tax collectors were excommunicated from the synagogue, and they were unwelcome in Jewish society. That's why when you read Scripture, it talks about sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors in the same breath. Because they saw them of equal value, which wasn't much. What makes this even more interesting is if you look at Mark and Luke's account of this same event, when they identify Matthew, they call him by a different name. They call him Levi, both Mark and Luke. This may be an indication of just how far Matthew has fallen in his society because the name Levi would have come from the tribe of the Levites. And you'll remember, the Levites were people that God set apart as priests who would lead the people in temple worship. But instead of serving the people in worship, Matthew stole from the people in taxes. And so what a scandal it must have been when Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. 
in the original language, these words are in what's called the imperative mood, which tells us that this was not an invitation. This was a command. That's the way Jesus spoke these words to Matthew. And to his credit, when Matthew heard that command, he immediately obeyed. Look at how it continues in uh, verse 10. Well, actually, Luke 5.28 says, uh, excuse me, uh, yeah. In Luke 5.28, it says that he, being Matthew, left everything in his decision to follow Jesus. It must have been a scandal for Jesus to have invited Matthew to follow him, but even more shocking that Matthew would accept the invitation. Because we need to understand what Matthew is walking away from when he makes this decision. First, his position as a tax collector came with the protection of Rome. So wherever he went, he had a military escort to protect him. He may have been hated by the people, but he was protected by the most powerful empire the world had ever known. And not only that, Matthew would have been a very wealthy man and very secure in his job. But unlike the other disciples, and this is important, unlike the other disciples, once Matthew walked away, he could never go back. You see, the other disciples, many of them were what? They were fishermen. So if things didn't work out with Jesus, they just go right back to fishing, doing what they were doing beforehand. But Matthew, in a sense, shoves all his chips into the center of the table. If this doesn't work out, he becomes an enemy of the state, having walked away from that job, and he remains an enemy of the Jews, having been hated in the first place. Matthew will have nowhere else to turn. He's all in. Now look at verse 10. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now there's a few things that we need to recognize in this verse. First, Matthew, again, must have been wealthy because he apparently has a large house because a lot of people have gathered. And this is a feast. He's evidently feeding everyone who has arrived. But it also says something about what's happening in Matthew's heart as well. Because when he chose to follow Jesus, he could have left all those people behind and just said, I'm done with you. I'm doing something new. You have to take care of yourself. But that's not what happened, is it? Matthew wanted to give them the same opportunity that Jesus had afforded him. So he invites them literally to the table. And their response says something about the openness of the outcast. Verse 10 says that the house was filled with sinners and tax collectors. So we can fill in the blank here. We're talking prostitutes and criminals and people that everybody looked down upon all of a sudden had an opportunity to be invited in. Outcasts of society. But they're there because Jesus is preaching a gospel of inclusion, a gospel that removes the barriers that have been applied by society. That's why Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he says that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in 
Christ Jesus. And it's important to note that every one of those distinctions listed by Paul were influenced by the culture. They were divisions based on ethnicity, divisions based on social status, divisions based on gender, and that's how person's worth was determined. And God is saying those divisions do not apply in my kingdom. We are not identified by our differences. We are identified by our oneness, by what we have in common, by Jesus Christ. Those are powerful words, especially if you're one of the outcasts. Outcasts were used to being ignored, and now they've been invited in, which is why Matthew's house was filled with people who wanted to know more. And it's important to notice this. The crowd that gathered in Matthew's home could have never been reached in the synagogue. The crowd that gathered in Matthew's home could have never been reached in the synagogue. They weren't allowed there. Look at how it continues in verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard, Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This event, as we can see here, did not receive the approval of the religious leaders. But instead of confronting Jesus, they went and questioned his disciples. And their question comes in a very accusatory tone. Essentially, they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The implication being that your teacher doesn't do what our teacher says is right which means one of our teachers is wrong. And since your teacher is the outlier, it must be him. And here's why the religious leaders had such a problem with what was happening in Matthew's house. Table fellowship, gathering together, sharing a meal with one another was reserved for intimate friends. Gathering together came with an implied endorsement of the lifestyle of whoever you are with. Therefore, you only ate with people who were just like you. Otherwise, to eat with a sinner would mean that you must be a sinner too. That was the real accusation of the question from the religious leaders. So Jesus responded by saying, it's not the healthy who need the doctor. It's the sick. This proverb that Jesus speaks is really a condemnation to the religious leaders. After all, doctors go to school to learn about sickness and disease and dysfunction. They study the the ways in which to bring healing to the sick. But if they only spend time with people who are healthy, then why in the world would you ever want to be a doctor? It doesn't make any sense. In a similar way, the religious leaders claimed to be spiritual doctors. They were experts in the law. They knew about the disease of sin, and they knew where to find a cure. But if you're withholding that cure from those who are sick, why do you want to be a doctor? It's like 
having a cure for cancer and then watching people die of the disease. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. In Matthew's gospel, he records a quotation, and Matthew's the only one that does it. It's from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I want to read to you what that verse says. It says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And what Hosea communicates is actually repeated several times throughout the Old Testament. One of my favorite examples in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? The answer, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Jesus said, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. And that's not because sacrifices are bad. In fact, they were instituted by God himself. But the Bible consistently condemns religious practices without a repentant heart. You see, the sacrificial system as a whole was built around the confession of sin. That's why you made sacrifices. But the religious leaders have overlooked their sin and condemned the sin of others. You see, they rejected Jesus as Savior because they didn't need a Savior like Jesus. But Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinner. And that's not to suggest in any way that the religious leaders were righteous because they were not. They were self-righteous, unwilling to admit their sin. Jesus actually condemns this whole idea later in Matthew when he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Again, another example of this same idea. Beginning in verse 7, chapter 15, it says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. In other words, they've forgotten the heart of what God communicated in his word because they've made up their own rules along the way. And as a result, instead of reaching out to those who are in need, they've huddled up in their own concentration of religious leaders refusing to administer the healing that has been made available. You see, I believe that true repentance is the key here, and I believe that we see true repentance in the heart of Matthew. And I think we can see it in three very specific ways. Number one, he was willing to leave everything. He was willing to leave everything. The second evidence of repentance in the life of Matthew is that he was willing to associate with anyone. We see that very clearly in this passage, don't we? And then lastly, he was willing to do anything. And so as we finish up this morning, I want us to take these three attributes that we see in the life of of Matthew as evidence of his repentant heart as what I believe to be trademarks of true disciples. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ, both for Matthew and for us. As I mentioned earlier, when Matthew uh, decided to follow Jesus, he put all his chips on the table. This was a decision of full surrender because once he cut ties... He could not go back. And I think this is something that we need to consider more and more in the church today. 
Last week in her testimony, Corin mentioned the temptation that we all face, not just high school students, but adults as well at every level. We face the temptation to change our convictions based upon the crowd we are in. Holding to Christian values when we're around Christian people, that's easy. But then hiding those same values, being silent about those same values when we're around people who don't hold those same views. I call this a Christian chameleon. They change the colors of their convictions based upon the crowd that they are in. And I believe instead of being a chameleon, we need to be a parrot. (laughs) We need to be Christian parrots. There's no mistaking a parrot when you see one, right? They stand out wherever they are. They're comfortable, if you will, in their own skin or in this case, in their own feathers, right? But the point is, they stay true to who God made them to be, and so should we. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. Don't pretend if you can't go all in. Let me say that again. Don't pretend if you cannot go all in. I remember being pretty shocked a few years ago when I sat down with Bobby Dagnall, who's the pastor at First Baptist Church here in Lubbock, and we were talking about raising teenagers, and I was just coming upon that season in our own family at the time, and so he talked to me a little bit about some of his parenting as they raised their family. One of the things he, really, he said really kind of shocked me. He said, you know, when my kids were teenagers, I told them that they would need to decide in this season of their life whether they were going to walk in the light or walk in the darkness. They needed to decide if they were going to walk in the light or if they were going to walk in the darkness. But whatever they did, they can't do both. They either needed to be fully committed to following Christ or be honest about your decision to reject him. But don't lie to yourself and play both sides of the field. And I remember hearing him say that thing, wow, that's a pretty risky parenting strategy, right? But when I stop and think about it, it's actually pretty biblical. (laughs) Because if you look back at what we, I asked you to read last week in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 9, it says essentially that. It says, if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, that we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, because Christians confess, if we confess our sin, then God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Like we see with Matthew, Being a disciple means that you're willing to leave everything, to go all in. But also, being a disciple means you're willing to associate with anyone, to the point that you're willing to invite someone outside of your circle actually into your home, to find fellowship at your table. Like the Pharisees, it's so easy to avoid contact with the outcasts. It's so easy to just associate with people who are just like you because that's who you're comfortable with. That's who you have things in common with. And so it's real easy just to isolate yourselves to that circle of friends. But true disciples engage with sinners without engaging in their 
sin. But you've got to be honest. Because if you are not in a place where you feel like you're strong enough to hold to your convictions, then please don't put yourself in a place of compromise. But in the end, if we belong to Christ, the Bible says we are ministers of reconciliation. And like the doctor who's unwilling to be around the sick, it just makes no sense for ministers to be unwilling to be around sinners. Look, part of the problem, I believe, with what's going wrong in our world today is that those who don't know Christ have a louder voice than those who do. And we know that anything that they have to offer short of the gospel of Jesus Christ falls well short of being any meaningful solution to what is happening in our world today. But we can't sit back and silently watch people die of cancer if we have the cure. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the cure. Because the gospel is the cure. Jesus Christ, hear me clearly, Jesus Christ is the single solution to all that is wrong and is happening in our world today. We must enter in because the gospel is the cure. Until there is a spiritual revival in the church, listen to me, until there is a spiritual revival in the church, there will not be an awakening in the world. I think many times we think about spiritual revival and we think about something happening outside of us, like there's something going to be stirring in the world that is remarkable. But the fact of the matter is, every spiritual revival that has ever existed always began in the church. And until there's a spiritual revival in here, we can't expect anything to look different out there. Like Matthew, everyone who claims to be a disciple must be willing to leave everything, complete and total surrender. They must be willing to associate with any, anyone, no more dividing walls. And they must be willing to do anything. I really hope that this pandemic, if, if nothing else, will help us realize as a church that anything that we're doing to remain comfortable and content in this world is increasingly disappointing. As far as I'm concerned, that's not a bad thing. Because this world is not our home. We're not supposed to be comfortable and content in the broken world of sin. We need to wake up. We need to wake up to the purpose of why we're here in the first place. And that purpose, please hear me, is more than being a good citizen. It's more than being a good parent. It's more than being a good employee. Those aren't bad things, but they do not fulfill your ultimate purpose. We serve a purpose that's much bigger than any of those things. We are called to display the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. John Piper says this. He says that we are called to live in such a way as to make the infinite value of Jesus more plain than if we had not lived. That's our purpose. Now think about that. Is the infinite value of knowing Jesus 
made evident in your life to the point that it is more plain than it would be had you not lived. Is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ made evident in your life? And each day, are you recommitting yourself to the devotion of that ultimate purpose? I believe Paul describes that well in Philippians chapter 3. Listen to what he writes in verses 7 through 11. This is our purpose. Paul is describing his, but it's no different than it is for us. So listen closely to what he says. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained for me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value, there it is, of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, from whom I've suffered the loss of all things. He's not comfortable and content. He suffered the loss of all things, counting them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. It may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him. And here's what our life is defined by, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is not describing someone who is comfortable and content in this world, is he? He's describing someone who's living for what is to come. Fulfilling our ultimate purpose means that we have our eyes fixed on the ultimate prize. Willing to leave everything in complete surrender. Willing to associate with anyone. No more dividing walls. Willing to do anything to display the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. That's our value. That's our purpose. So the questions to our passage this morning I think are really simple. Right? The first question is, is there something that you need to leave? The second question, is there someone you need to pursue? And then finally, is there a person, a purpose you need to renew? Based on what we talked about this morning. So as Brian comes up, I want to ask you to just take some time right now. Where you're seated, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to think about these questions, and I want you to consider them one by one as you think about what that might look like in your life. So just take some time for reflection right now before the Lord, before we close in in song. Think about that first question. Is there something that you need to leave? What does complete surrender look like for you? Is there something that you're holding on to that you need to let go of? Matthew left everything behind so that he could follow Jesus. What does that look like for you? Is there someone you need to pursue? If you belong to Christ, you are a minister of reconciliation. Is there someone that you need to share that story with? Someone you just need to be around so that they can see the evidence of God's forgiveness in your life. Who do you need to pursue?
then finally and probably most importantly, is there a purpose that you need to renew? Your purpose is to display the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. And what does that look like for you? How would it look like? What difference does that make in the relationships around you so that they might see more clearly through you what they would have missed out on had they not known you? What does it mean in the places which you live and work and play to display the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's stand together and sing, please. Really a great song based on what we walked through this morning. Jesus is calling. We see that he called Matthew, and we saw how Matthew responded. But let me just remind you of something. A calling from Jesus is not a one-time event. It happens every single day. And even if you look at the life of the disciples, even after having called them, each and every day they walked with him, he was calling them into a deeper understanding of who he is and what he has in store for them. And what is true for them is equally true for you. Every day you live, Jesus is calling you into a deeper knowledge of the surpassing value of who he is and what he does in those who have chosen to follow him. So I pray that you hear that every day as you seek to follow him. Let me pray as we close. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the great example of Matthew who left everything, who was willing to associate with anyone and do anything because of the surpassing value of knowing you, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. May what we see in the life of Matthew be increasingly evident in our life as well. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you and have a great day.